The following podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. We advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our research, to listen to our podcasts, and to watch our videos, please visit hoover.org. Welcome to Economics Applied, Episode 3, in which we continue our discussion of a global commonwealth, if you can keep it. This episode features a conversation with Barry Eichengreen on 18 December 2019. Barry, it's great to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Very good to be here. Earlier, we heard from Condi Rice about the U.S.-led global commonwealth that arose after World War II, and from Bob Steiger about the particular roles of the GATT and the WTO. Uh, We'd like to get your perspective on the role of the International Monetary Fund in fostering, or not, a shared prosperity among nations. And perhaps you could start by sketching uh, the original vision for the IMF and tell us how it's evolved over time. The International Monetary Fund was created in 1944 uh, following several years uh, of discussions and negotiations, mainly between the governments of the United States and the United Kingdom, but involving 42 other nations as well basically to provide the global public good of international monetary and financial stability. Um, I was impressed by Condi's discussion and uh, um, focus on what she called a global commonwealth, but international economists and economic historians have been talking about the same thing, I think, for a long time, referring to international public goods rather than an international commonwealth. Commonwealth kind of uh, implies the idea of public goods, goods that are are commonly uh, consumed by all the nations involved. So I think there is a lot of overlap between those concepts and those terms. But what happened in 1944 was uh, a reflection of perception. The perception that this international public good of global monetary and financial stability had been inadequately supplied in the 1920s and 1930s. And it was a reflection of politics that the United States in particular was in a strong position to lead the process. So I think there's overlap there as well with the points that Condi was making about the United States having served as the steward of the um, global commonwealth or uh, providing guidance for the provision of, of international public goods. The last point I would make by way of introduction is that, for obvious reasons, what people mean, what we mean by uh international monetary and financial stability has changed over time. The initial focus was on the stability of exchange rates. Subsequently, the focus shifted to the stability of capital flows, and I think most recently to the stability of financial systems broadly defined. So the magic of the IMF, as it were, is that it's been able to adapt and reinvent itself in response to these changing circumstances and, and perceptions. So how do you 
see the uh, strengths and weaknesses of the IMF on balance today? And maybe you want to go back 20 years ago. The IMF came in for a lot of criticism in the wake of the uh, Asian financial crisis. I just trying to get your sense of you know where you th- see things working well and where you see uh, perhaps a lot of room for improvement. Answering that question requires uh, defining or specifying what the functions of the IMF are. The first one is uh, surveillance, which means trying to assess uh, the adequacy of economic policies in light of current economic conditions. Uh, and, And in that context, the fund acts as trusted advisor to governments. It tries to tell them how well they're doing in, in, in terms of policy formulation and responding to changing economic conditions. I think my assessment uh, in that context would be that the IMF is not a good economic forecaster. It's repeatedly fallen down on the job uh, in, in, in terms of forecasting economic conditions broadly defined and anticipating financial crises in particular, but I would say it's not alone. That kind of forecasting is not good, That not, not something that any of us are good at. The fund has done much better, in, in, I think, in terms of, uh, of being trusted advisor to governments and uh, um, advising them on what kind of policies to pursue. There are exceptions to that generalization, to be sure, the fund, I think, pushed too hard for capital account liberalization, for the liberalization of policies toward international capital flows in emerging markets in the 1990s before they had strengthened their financial systems, their regulation, their um, corporate governance. And that problem came back to fight the Asian economy in particular in 1997-98, the fund has since made progress in terms of uh, adopting a more nuanced position. The second function uh, of, of the IMF is to act as fireman uh, uh, to help countries once they succumb to a crisis. That's uh, a thankless job because the fund always shows up on the scene after something has gone wrong for whatever reason. And uh, again, I think here the IMF has made mistakes. Uh, it did uh, buy into theories of expansionary fiscal consolidation or uh, painless austerity uh, at the beginning of this decade in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, but what we see as in the previous context, is that the IMF is a learning institution, that they do reflect on their mistakes and, and shortcomings. They do have a independent evaluation office that can say what, what, it, what it thinks about uh, the fund's successes and failures. And I, I think IMF policy toward crisis countries like Argentina has evolved in a positive direction. And the third function is to encourage international uh, macroeconomic cooperation, where uh, it has always had very limited success and I think continues to have 
limited success. The U.S. Congress and the Federal Reserve, for example, will mainly make policy with uh, the condition of, of the U.S. economy in mind, and it therefore tends to disregard what the fund says about taking the rest of the world's needs on board. Kevin, did you want to jump in here? or? Yeah, I mean... You've talked a little about, you know, the mistakes that they've made. What would you say are the is there things that they've either specifically done well or consistently done well or what we've learned on the positive side in terms of the role the IMF can and should play um, going forward and based on actual experience, not just on some theoretical idea of what might be a good idea? Is there, are there lessons on the positive side as well? Yeah, so the, the, the fund has been a positive influence, for example, uh, on the structure of fiscal policy. So it, it uh, points to the costs of fuel subsidies and sectoral subsidies and inefficient tax systems and the like. I think we all have a tendency to focus excessively on the budget deficit or surplus and the macroeconomic situation. The fund is also concerned with microeconomics and economic structure, where it has, by and large, been an overwhelmingly positive influence. There are concerns that when it says to a country, your budget is out of control, you need to cut spending. The spending cuts fall disproportionately on, on the poor and disadvantaged and that can elicit a political backlash that makes the reforms politically unsustainable. But there, too, I think the fund has moved to try to address its shortcomings. Similarly, on the monetary policy side, the fund is a big proponent of independent central banks and uh, modern approaches to the formulation of, of monetary policy that involve forecasting future inflationary conditions and allowing, in most cases, for a greater degree of exchange rate stability. So in terms of the structures through which monetary policy is conducted and the structure of government budgets, it's had a, a strongly positive effect. And where, it, where it's been more negative, I think, in the past has been uh, in, 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 in terms of not being aware that uh, uh, harsh adjustment programs as needed to bring inflation down and stabilize an exchange rate and a financial system can end up being unsustainable if they don't protect the poor. Are there, are there any success stories in, in doing that, though? I mean, countries that, are, that have considered fiscal consolidation are often driven to that by um, their fiscal position and by external pressures. It doesn't seem like an easy issue to address one way or the other. Or am I wrong? Right. So, no, no, you're right. But uh, uh, the point is that the fund has a role to play in this regard both before and after the fact. In other words, it uh, has a role in, in, in terms of crisis prevention in warning countries that there is a problem with their, uh, how they fund their, their pensions that needs to be addressed to prevent the budget deficit from exploding. And when it uh, does point policymakers in that direction successfully, 
know that once you've fallen, if, if you're a country that has succumbed to a crisis, there are no easy, painless solutions. The question is only, uh, can we avoid uh, unnecessary pain? Can we avoid making the recession even deeper? And can we try to structure the adjustment program in, in, in ways that uh, increase the odds that countries are going to be able to follow through? Yeah, Mary, going back to your point about forecasting that you made earlier, and I, it's hard to deny that um, the economics profession as a whole has done a pretty poor job of forecasting financial crises and maybe even currency crises as well. Is that is that just the uh, intrinsic difficulty of the task, or are there things that the IMF could be doing and maybe is doing to actually materially improve our ability to uh, recognize these crises in advance or rec- and re- recognize them and head them off is the ideal. Right. I'm trying to get a sense of, uh, can we do better here, and if so, how? So I think we, we have been doing somewhat better over time. The forecasting problem has two aspects to it. One is, is plain vanilla macroeconomic forecasting. What's the expected growth rate in a given economy or, or in the world next year? There, the IMF has systematically uh, erred on the upside. It, it has always forecasted growth that's better than what materialized. And I don't know, but uh, that pattern strongly suggests that there are political pressures from the members to paint a rosy scenario and that even the, the, the best economists working in a bureaucratic organization with shareholders to whom, whom they report may subconsciously feel some pressure. Uh, the other dimension is, is forecasting crises, and there uh, we know there's both their costs from type 1 error and costs from type 2 error. If you've missed a bunch of crises and you think we, we had better warn of more crises in the future, you run the risk of just precipitating the, uh, the bad event that you wanted to avoid. So it's a, it's a delicate balancing act. What the fund has done uh, to deal with this problem is two things. Number one, better data. So they have uh, promulgated standards that their members are supposed to adhere to about what kind of data they gather and disseminate to the public and to the IMF itself, and and the ways they gather those data to make them more reliable. Better data should make for better forecasts. And then the fund has uh, done done a lot of uh, uh, analytical and econometric modeling of crises and, and, and related phenomenon, taking on uh, all the recent work that has been done in academia. And there, you know, um, every economist in the audience will have a view of whether recent developments in macroeconomics are, are a significant step forward or not. Either way, the fund has the SGE models and, and every trendy recent macro model as part of its forecasting arsenal. So is it your view, though, that they should be more hesitant to introduce those new ideas and focus more on, you know, 
things that have proven to work over a longer period of time? Should they try to simplify what they do, or what? Do you, what's your thoughts? Is, well, I think they, more, that they. Or is, uh, <laughs> well, um, one could ask that question in the in, in the context uh, of methodology and procedures. What kind of methods and models and procedures um, should they be using? Or one could ask that question about issues. They're now worried about climate change and about gender equality and, a, and about a and about a variety of issues that don't fall haven't traditionally fallen within their mandate. So I can answer the uh, the second question. I think they need to focus on their knitting and look mainly at uh, uh, um, macroeconomic stability, financial stability, and uh, and 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 look at things like climate change or gender equality only insofar as these things relate directly to their mandate. Climate change is relevant to the fund, in my view, just like it's relevant to uh, the Federal Reserve, only insofar as it has implications for inflation and growth and, and financial stability. And otherwise, uh, those issues should be addressed across the street at the World Bank. In terms of methodology and procedures, uh, I, I do think there is a danger and a temptation at the fund to make things too complicated and uh, spend too much time on, on, on the latest trendy uh, uh, academic innovation, partly because uh, the uh, IMF needs talented people. They do succeed in recruiting some of the really good new PhDs from top programs every year. But I think there may be a tendency to think we at the IMF need to keep them happy. And one way we keep them happy is let, let them do the kind of work that they became accustomed to and, and uh, in, in graduate school and therefore enjoy. So there may be, a, a, in, in, in my view, too much effort devoted to uh, the latest trend in academia, but if you don't do that, you may uh, not be able to attract some of the job candidates you wanted. So you, your view is definitely oh. simplify your mission, maybe simplify your methods, but probably more emphasis on focusing on a narrower mission that's closer to the core of what you know, what you've been about, and what you were created to do. Is that? That kind of view. If you if you wanted to simplify in one dimension, you would say mission first, method second. Yeah, that's my view. Uh, with the caveat that I don't think we can be uh, afford to be purists on these things, and uh, inevitably, when you when when your point of departure is the statement we need to focus on macroeconomic and financial stability, you end up looking at a lot of related as well. But most well, they're also say, as they relate to your primary mission. Is the, exactly. That seems to me what I'm getting from what you're saying is you look at broader things, but you always bring them back to how do they relate to our, my primary mission. Right, because that um, makes for analytical and intellectual coherence. And it also makes for political support. So one of the problems the IMF now has 
is that some of its financial resources uh, uh, expire next year in 2020 and others expire in 2022. And it needs, among other members, the U.S. government to uh, uh, agree to extend them. So the more uh, coherent the fund can be about its mission, and the stronger the case it can make that there is this clear, positive relationship between uh, our actions and uh, our ability to achieve our core mission, the stronger that political support will be. Mary, much of your research is, is informed by economic history. And I, I see you as a bit of an outlier in the profession in that respect, certainly among macroeconomists, but I'm, I'm putting myself in the macroeconomics category. Is there too little attention to economic history and, ex, and deep expertise in economic history at the IMF and in the hiring of people who populate the, the analytical staff at the IMF? Well, I certainly think they would benefit from more. There are other institutions out there, like the Federal Reserve Board, that are better in terms of hiring people who have uh, economic history as part of their portfolio, because I think they're more aware that uh, previous historical episodes uh, are a source of insight into uh, into current problems. Uh, I do think that uh, these international organizations have, have always been employers to an extent of uh, economic historians because the IMF and the World Bank and uh, the Bank for International Settlements have to worry about institutions as well as uh, markets in the abstract. And economic historians uh, presumably are sources uh, of knowledge of those institutions, how they've evolved, and therefore how much difference they make. Kevin, any any further questions from you? No, I think I think this has been excellent. I think uh, yeah, we got a pretty good idea of, of what the IMF is about, what you know, what they do well, what they've had some issues with, maybe how they could refocus or you know maintain a, a, a coherent um, mission going forward. I mean, I want to go back to one, there was one thing I want to ask, and, and maybe Barry can just talk about it a little bit more. Uh, and that is, how do you maintain political support? And, you know, one of the things that Connie talked about was the global commonwealth. And as you correctly pointed out, part of that commonwealth might be to provide public goods, but another key aspect of the commonwealth is doing things that are in the mutual interest of the members of the commonwealth. And and that extends beyond uh, the public goods. And how does that relate to maintaining political support? That is, you know, it seems to me if you are successful at doing things that generate widespread benefits to lots of members, that's probably your best way to keep political support. Um, so there's kind of a complementarity there between adhering to the Commonwealth view and maintaining the support that's necessary to provide those kind of public goods. What, what right. So if, it, if, if, if you... Go back once more to the 1940s and uh, uh, the creation of the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, and broadly speaking, the the gap as well. 
There was a lot of skepticism and, indeed, overt hostility toward this in the U.S. Congress, which said enough of these uh, international entanglements, we don't want this. Um, What made the difference, I think, was two things. Uh, An effective uh, publicity campaign that uh, 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 Roosevelt and Truman administrations, among others, were able to articulate and explain to the American public and, and, and to politicians why these new institutions would, would, would be, would function in the American interest and, and, and be good for Americans as well. And number two, the uh, fact of the Cold War, which I think Condi alluded to as well, that it was uh, in, in important for the United States to um, ensure the creation of these institutions and get on board. We joined the United, United Nations the IMF and the World Bank being United Nations institutions, unlike the case of the League of Nations after World War One, and I think the difference was the advent of the of the Cold War. So, um, I, I I I do think all of us, uh, people in government, but people in, in in the podcast world as well, need to make the first case more effectively. And uh, I think there are a lot of regrettable aspects to the U.S.-China conflict at the moment. But the, 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 the knowledge that there is, again, this uh, geopolitical rivalry, that there is a vague resemblance to the Cold War, may be another reason why Americans will be prepared to get on board. Great. Well, that, that sounds like a great note to end on, Barry. Um, and uh, I share your your sentiment there. Uh, thanks so much. It's it's been uh, it's been really great chatting with you. Good, it was fun. Thanks, Barry. This has been great. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit Hoover.org.